Last week, we began a series, a sermon study titled Good News for All People, How Jesus Overcomes Our Shame, Fear, and Guilt. And the point I tried to make last week is that all of us, everyone in this room, no matter what your name is, no matter where you're from or whatever, all of us are motivated at times in our lives by certain negative emotions. It's just true. Sometimes these emotions are culturally conditioned. Sometimes these uh, emotions are the result of some event or trauma that happened in our lives. But we're all driven at times in our lives by the emotions of shame, guilt, or fear. These are the driving emotions in our lives. And shame, if you're driven by shame, it's when we're driven, when we have a sense that who we are is wrong. Uh, when we feel like when, when we have shame, it's because we feel like there is something intrinsically wrong with us. And if others, our fear is that if we would, if others discovered who we really were, we would be cast out. Or sometimes we carry shame because others have shamed us. They've made us feel ashamed for something in our lives. And when we talk about shame, we use the language of community. What will people think? When we feel ashamed, we say, what will people think if they knew? How can I be accepted? How can I be welcomed? How can I be included? How can I be loved? Or if, we've been, if we feel shame because of others have placed shame on us, we, we'll say things like, they abandoned me or they cast me aside. These are all community type words. But the good news of the gospel, and we talked about this last week, is that God knows you. He knows your innermost being. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your deepest thought. He knows everything that he knows everything about you that no one else knows about you. Those things that you're so afraid that if people knew that they would disregard you, he knows, yet he still welcomes you. And on the cross, Jesus took our shame. And then at the resurrection, He offers us His honor and He adopts us as His children. He gives us a name, a family, and an inheritance. And one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible is Isaiah 26, 18. It says, those who believe in Him will not be put to shame. So those who are driven by a sense of shame, the, the hope of the gospel says, the, the, the life of Jesus, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus says that those who believe in Him, their shame can be removed. Others of us were driven by guilt. And when we are driven by guilt, it's the sense of what we've done is wrong. If shame is who I am is wrong, guilt is what I've done is wrong. And there's something maybe in your past that haunts you. You feel unworthy or you feel like you've done wrong. You feel like you can't move forward unless you make it right. Um, I know I've mentioned the Avengers three weeks in a row now. Um, and still no spoilers. But you should see it because in the next few weeks I might start dropping spoilers for Endgame. But, <laughs> but in the very first Avengers movie, you've had like eight years to see this, okay? You remember the Black Widow character, Natasha Romanoff, Scarlett Johansson. One of the story, one of the main like storylines of her character is she says, "I've got a lot of red in my ledger, and I need to wipe it out." And her whole character arc in Avenger, the Avengers saga is her going, "What do I do with all this red in my ledger? All these things that I've done in my past." And when we talk about guilt, we use language of a courtroom. So if shame is a language of community, guilt is a language of a courtroom. How can I wipe out my ledger? How can I be pardoned? How can I make these things right? How can I pay off this debt? Or how can I balance the scales? And we're going to talk about guilt next week. How Jesus removes our guilt and declares us innocent 
because of the cross. The red in our ledger is consumed by the red blood of Jesus on the cross. But the emotion I want us to consider this morning is fear. Many of us are driven by fear. And fear, when we're driven by fear, it's when we're driven by what we don't have control over. We love to have control, don't we? And when we feel out of control, we panic. That's fear. We fear things like sickness. We fear the future, the uncertainty of it all. We fear the actions of other people. We fear what people might think. And when we talk about fear, we don't use the language of community or a courtroom. We use the language of combat. How can, I, how can I win this battle? How can I survive? How can I overcome? How can I no longer be in bondage? How can I no longer be a slave? How can I be free? How can I experience peace? In some cultures, fear is the driving force. They fear, uh, so this is why there are, many cultures have rituals to ward off bad spirits or bad luck. See, fear is a primal aspect of human existence. In fact, I would argue it's the first emotion you ever felt. You know, you, you come out of your mother's womb and you're like, bright lights, you know, this doctor just spanked to me. Like, you're just scared and you cry. It's the most primal emotion of human existence. This is why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when Jesus was born, it says, an angel said to the people, fear not. This is because Jesus has come. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And this is what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider fear. And I want us to look at Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to walk through this story and then pull some things from it. Look, uh, it's, it's in the bulletin, in the worship guide that we have. Verse 35, it says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. So Jesus is hanging with his disciples. They're in the Jewish section of the Sea of Galilee, in a Jewish region. And they, he says, Why don't we go to the other side, to the non Jewish, the Gentile region? And so they hop in a boat, and then there's several other boats with them. And they, they head off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It says, In leaving the crowd, they took with them, they, uh, in leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling with water. And so they're in a boat with Jesus, and there's some other boats around following him, and it says a great windstorm arose. This isn't just a windstorm, this is a great windstorm. And now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee. And we, a group of us, went to Israel earlier this year, and I've been to the Sea of Galilee. It's a large, um, it's a large, it's actually freshwater. It's a lake. It's not actually a sea, but it's freshwater. And I've always had good weather when I've been. Nice, 70 degree, perfect days. Very peaceful, the Sea of Galilee is on a nice day. And I, it's so peaceful that I remember looking out of the balcony of my hotel in Tiberias thinking, how could there be a storm that would scare someone they think they were dying. I mean, it's, it's like so peaceful. And so the next day I ask, or, we, or when we get in the bus, I ask our guide, I was like, tell me how that lake right there can be so violent that the disciples would fear for their lives. And he looked at me with a very serious look. He said, you don't want to be in that lake when a storm comes. I said, is it pretty bad? He said, oh, it's really bad. He said, just look on YouTube is what he told me. But here's what, and he explained to me why that is. So you have the Sea of Galilee, and it's surrounded by mountains. And the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. 
And those mountain ranges stretch all the way up to some as, far, as high as 7,000. Some even, if you go all the way to like Jordan, 9,000 feet in elevation above sea level. And so you have a mixture of cold air coming from, coming from the mountains from 7,000 feet. And then you warm air from 700 feet below sea level in the Sea of Galilee. And then you science people know when hot air and cold air get together, bad things happen. Not to mention that on the Sea of Galilee, there's the two mountain ranges form a tunnel. So there's these two mountain ranges. There's a mountain range on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a mountain range just like on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so when a windstorm comes, it creates a wind tunnel that just throws those water, the waters all over the place. And our guide, he says, you don't want to be on the Sea of Galilee when a storm comes. So this was a violent storm. And the boat was taking on water. The disciples are panicking. And what's Jesus doing? Verse 38, it says that he was in the stern, the back of the boat, and he was asleep, not just sleeping. He was asleep on a cushion. Like he was comfortable. He was very comfortable. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, my question for you is how many of you have asked this question of God before? God, do you not care? Do you not care that I'm dying here? I'm perishing over here. I'm dying. God, it feels like you're asleep and my life is falling apart. Where are you? Do you even care? How many of you have asked that question? And it feels like God is asleep. It feels like God is nowhere to be found. And you're like, do you not care that I'm perishing? And it says, verse 39, it says, Jesus awoke. And I imagine he like gets up and he's like taking his time and stretching. And they're like freaking out. They're like, what's going on? It says he awoke. And look how just simple this is. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now I love the word rebuke because that's such an interesting word, isn't it? But he didn't ask the storm, hey, could you guys keep it down? Rebuke, you can only rebuke something that you have complete power over. Like, I can try to rebuke my children, but I don't have complete power over them. They don't always do what I say. The only thing I can think of that I have total control over is, Alexa, tell me the weather, you know? And it tells me the weather. But you know, like, this, the confidence you have with those devices? Alexa, tell me the weather. Play Billy Joel's greatest hits. Give me a rest. We feel like God's talking to those things, don't we? With those little devices, they do whatever we want them to do. But Jesus stands up and he rebukes the weather like he's stopping an alarm on a phone. He does it with his voice Peace, be still. In the original language, this implies continuing action. It's as if he says, Be quiet and stay quiet. I mean, he's ta- I mean, it's like a dog. He's talking to it like it's a golden retriever. Like, be quiet and stay. I mean, he has total authority over the winds and the waves. There's no, he doesn't pull out a magic wand. He doesn't have an incantation. There's no expecto patronum. It's just shut up to the winds and the waves and they stop. He has complete authority over the winds and the waves. And then he turns to his disciples, and I love this. Man of so few words. Peace be still. Then he turns to his disciples and he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He says to them. 
And I don't know if it's me and I'm the disciples. Maybe I'm not in that moment, so I can't say for sure. But I'm, I'm expecting them at that moment to snap back. And they're like, Jesus, are you kidding me? Why am I afraid? Like, I'm a, like most of these guys were fishermen by trade. They've seen bad storms, and this one was bad enough for them to fear for their lives. They're like, Jesus, you're asking me why I'm afraid? Are you serious? Like, why am I afraid? This storm is huge. And then you question our faith. You say to me, have you still no faith? Like, I mean, you got to think that they're, they're like, we're here with you, aren't we, Jesus? Like, we left everything. We're following you. We, we've left everything, and, you're, and you question our faith? That's what I would expect them to say. It's probably what I would say. But they didn't say any of that. They answered his question with a question of their own. It says they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now I want us to look at three questions this morning and they come right from the text. What are you afraid of? Where is your faith? And who is this man? What are you afraid of? Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? And for the disciples, that seems like an easy question. I mean, they're in a violent storm. They feared for their lives, literally. Why are we afraid? We're dying here. But for us, our fear is often more subtle. And it takes a little bit of digging sometimes for us to understand our fears. For me, it took counseling. It takes, (laughs) I don't understand the fears that drive me. But for often us, our fears are very subtle. And so some of us, the fear that drives us is we're afraid of not being loved. We're afraid of being alone or we're afraid of not living up to our own standards or you fear failing. You fear not being successful. You fear not having a purpose or we fear being average. We fear being controlled or not having power or being out of control or we fear missing out. We've even given an acronym for that. It's called FOMO. Fear of missing out. We fear conflict. Some of us, we just, we just want peace. And what all psychologists will say is that these fears that undergird our personalities, they will drive us. And they will, they will, our fears will actually lead us to make decisions in our lives based on our fears. We worry because of what we're afraid of. We orient our lives around making sure that our biggest fears never become a reality. Now, listen, I've done all the personality profile stuff. Have you guys done this at work or whatever? I've done all this stuff. Myers-Briggs. Enneagram, disc profile. There's even the one where you're like an animal. Do you guys know this one? Like, are you a lion, a beaver, an otter, or a Labrador retriever, a golden retriever? You seen this? I'm not endorsing any of these systems or tools. I think personality profiles are helpful in some ways, but I think they're, they can be misused in other ways. I think every person in this room is far too complex to be categorized by Myers-Briggs or whatever. But I have discovered with my counselor um, that when you sort of average out all these tests, you get a picture of kind of who, you, where, what drives your personality. And for me, I'm gonna get vulnerable today. Is that okay? I mean, this is free counseling. I treat you guys as counseling for myself. My counselor and I, we kind of determined that one of the fears that drives me, or the thing that I want most in life, often is to be seen as successful. I mean, that's the thing that drives me. I want to be seen as successful. I want to be seen as unique, and I want to be seen as impressive. That's what I. That's what drives me. And so my biggest fear in life, I'm being vulnerable here, okay? So smile. Make me feel like I'm, I'm, this is a safe place, okay? My biggest fear is that you would think I'm average. That's it. I mean, when you boil it all down, my biggest fear in life is that you guys would think I'm average or that anybody would think I'm average. And because, I fear, because that's my fear, 
I often make decisions based on how I can be seen as extraordinary in people's eyes. And so some of the accomplishments and achievements in my life I pursued not for righteous reasons, but so that I could have a title or so that I could have something. Now, there's always some goodness and evil in all of us, right? But I have to keep my heart in check because sometimes this fear of not not being approved of by others, it can lead me to be deceitful. Um, I, it can lead me to present myself in a false light, you know, put certain filters, metaphorically speaking, on who I am so that you see me in a false way and you think better of me. Oftentimes I'll try, I can spin my flaws and my weaknesses and make you think better of me even in my... Because I feel like I have to protect myself from being seen as average at all costs. That's the fear that drives me. I'm not sure what childhood wound or experience made me this way, my dad hugged me a lot. You know, my mom told me she loved me. But I don't know how it happened, but this is how I'm wired, generally speaking. And for you, you got to recognize how hard that is for me to say that out loud. Because now I'm, a, I'm going, I just told you that I'm afraid of what you think. And now I'm afraid that you think I'm a shallow, self-obsessed narcissist. So, like, I'm, this is really hard for me. I'm going to take a long, hard, exhausted nap today. But what is it for you? What, is, what, what do you fear? Do you fear being controlled? Do you fear conflict? So th- is this why you're passive all the time? You fear conflict, so you just never want it. So you, maybe you fear being alone, so you become codependent. See, often our fears lead us to manipulate our lives and manipulate the people in our lives to protect us from the thing we fear the most. Now, how do we overcome the fears that drive us? How do, we overcome, how do I overcome fear of man? How do you overcome whatever fear drives you? I think the answer is the same way that the disciples overcame their fear of the storm. And that's that they feared something greater. See, it says after Jesus calmed the storm. You expect them, the, calm, the sea is calm, and you would expect them to be like, ah, oh, now we can rest. Thanks, Jesus, for all your help. It actually says they were filled with great fear after the, the, the storm was calmed. They were filled with great fear. Why were, they were more afraid in the calm than they were in the storm. Why? Because they were afraid of the power of Jesus. They recognized Jesus for who He was. And they feared God in that moment. And we don't talk about that that much anymore. 21st century Christianity. We, like to, we don't talk about the fear of God. God has become sentimental, you know? Jesus is my homeboy. There's t-shirts that say that or, you know, like, or even like worship songs. We'll sing like, God, show up in this place, you know, come in here, meet with us. And you're like, in the Bible, when God shows up, people are always terrified. Why do you think angels, when they show up, like when, when heaven comes down, like angels always have, their first word is always, uh, fear not, don't die. When Jesus walks into the room after resurrection, what does He say? Peace! Relax! I mean, because every time in Scripture that someone is really in the presence of God, they fall on their face and they're terrified. Psalm 130 says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sigmund Freud claimed that, the, that religion was created out of our fear of nature. This is what he said. He said that in primitive times, people felt helpless before earthquakes and floods and disease. So humans 
In order to cope with the fear of the world around us, we created the idea of an all-powerful God to help us calm our fears. So now he says, you know, we, we can, we've created a God that, that, you know, that can calm the winds and the waves, calm the earthquakes, can whatever. And so now we can bargain with God to help us deal with these scary things. And so Freud claims that Christians concocted the idea of Jesus having power over the natural world as a way to help us cope with our powerlessness in nature. But this story right here creates a huge hole in Freud's theory. Because when the disciples saw Jesus rebuke the storm, they felt less calm. They felt more fear. Why would they be afraid of Jesus? Because they realized that they were in the presence of the holy, of that which is all-powerful. And when we are in the presence of that which is holy, we will always feel small. Um, when you're in the presence of greatness, you feel small. I remember uh, John Smoltz. Do you guys know who John Smoltz is? The pitcher? He pitched for the Atlanta Braves. He was my favorite athlete growing up. I saw him at LaGuardia Airport a few years ago. And he was my favorite athlete as a kid. No joke, I floated the idea of naming our firstborn child Smoltz McGee. I really did. <laughs> my wife shut it down. But I saw John Smoltz in uh, the LaGuardia Airport, and I sat there, and I was like shaking. At the time, I was a 30-year-old man. And I'm like shaking at this guy who's sitting, like getting on my flight. And, but I, I worked up the courage... And I went up and I said, excuse me, Mr. Smoltz? That's a true story. I called him Mr. Smoltz because I was so nervous. But I took a selfie with John Smoltz. And the picture is so blurry because my hand was shaking so bad. I'm a grown man. But in the presence of greatness, I, I trembled. And when, when we recognize God for who He is, we ought to tremble. Scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Back to my fears. What am I afraid of? At the core of my fear is to be seen as unacceptable by others or to be seen as average. So what is it that I'm really afraid of? What's my biggest fear? You. I'm afraid of your opinion. That, that, that's the thing that drives me. But when I see Jesus for who He is as completely holy, as far greater than you, and, his, and I see Him for who He is, something shifts in my heart and I begin to care more about the, His opinion of me than I do of your opinion of me. And I begin to fear His approval more than I fear yours. And so instead of manipulating others and you so that you'll be pleased with me or being the person that I feel like you want me to be so that you'll be impressed with me, when Jesus gets a hold of my heart and, gets a hold, and, and I begin to tremble in His presence, in my best moments then I begin to seek to obey Him because I realize that His approval is far greater than any of yours and His approval is far more important than anything I could ever gain from you. This is why time with God is so important for me and for you. Time in prayer daily, time in the Scriptures is so important because I have to remind myself every day that God is a holy God. And that he love, but that he loves me, and that he cares for me, and that if I don't gain the approval of anybody in this room or anybody in this world, but I gain, if I have the approval of him, I have all I need. And I and I fear that. I fe- I want his approval. And so I, by reminding myself of who God is, and 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 by having a healthy fear of who he is, I begin to serve him rather than serve your opinions. So what are you afraid of? What controls you? What fear controls you? And what, do you see Jesus as greater than that which you're afraid of? 
The second question Jesus asked is, where is your faith? He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, what is faith? Luckily, Scripture defines faith for us. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance. Other translations say confidence. Faith is the confidence of things that we hope for. The conviction of things not seen. See, your deepest fears reveal what you hope for. Okay, if you're sick and you're afraid of death, you hope for complete restoration. If you're like me and you're afraid of not being accepted or being seen as average, you hope for complete and total approval. If you're like my wife, her fear that drives her is conflict. She, she fears conflict. She wants peace. She grew up in a large family. It's loud. And she just wants peace. So she fears conflict. So she hopes for peace. That's, what, that's all she wants in life is for her family to be safe and for things to be the way they're supposed to be. Perhaps you fear being alone, and so you hope to have meaningful relationships. Those are all good things, and we hope for those things. But often we have misplaced hope, don't we? Meaning that we hope that a job or an achievement will satisfy that hope for approval, that desire for approval. So we keep chasing and keep chasing accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment after achievement after title after promotion after whatever. Or as many of us, we say, I hope this relationship is the one that ends my loneliness. But all of us in this room know that even the best relationships can never fill that emptiness in our hearts completely. Not even our children, not even our spouses. We hope that this treatment or this diet will heal me of whatever's plaguing me. The truth is, you, you, it may heal you. You may get healed of whatever plagues you today, but eventually your body will fail you. So, I mean, you can hope in health, you can hope in whatever, but it's, it's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Eventually your body will fail you. Whatever fear you have, you will take certain actions, you'll take certain steps with the hope that you can overcome those fears and achieve what you hope for. And what you, the, the steps you take and the thing you put your hope in, that's what you have faith in. What you are hoping for is what you have faith in for salvation. So we put our faith in jobs, we put our faith in relationships, we put our faith in people and achievements and health and status. That's what we put our faith in. But those things are really bad saviors. We put our faith in false saviors because we can never be assured that those things will deliver deliver on our hope fully. So if we really want to overcome fear, we have to put our faith in something that we can be assured will overcome our fear. See, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And what is your faith in? That's the question. Jesus said, have you no faith? The truth is, they had faith. It was just in the wrong things. Maybe they had faith in the boat, in their circumstance. Oh, we'll get across. But that boat's made of wood. And it says in the text that the water was coming in over the woods. That boat was not going to save them in a storm like that. Maybe they had faith in their ability as a savior, or, or as a sailor. They thought, I'm, I'm a fisherman by trade. We got this. We've been in storms before. But sometimes there will, in your life, there will be a storm that is far greater than your skill. And we can put, and all of us, we do this. We put our faith in our circumstances, whether that's our job, whether that's our status, whether that's our income, whether that's our retirement account, whether that's our relationships or whatever. We put our faith in our circumstances. 
or we put our faith in our skills. I can get myself out of this. I've got this. But there will come a day when you will face a storm where those things can't protect you. It just will. Live long enough. And you will, have, you will face a storm that your circumstances and your skill cannot overcome. Have you no faith? Jesus asked. Where is your faith? Jesus was in the storm with them, but their faith was in other things. Their faith was in the boat. It was in their, their skill. But Jesus is saying to them, I'm in the boat with you. Your faith should have been in me the whole time. Your faith, they showed that they had no faith in Jesus when they said, do you not care? Jesus says, when I'm in the storm with you, you should have nothing to fear. Your faith can rest in me. Now, where's your faith this morning? What is your assurance that the things you hope for will come to pass? Whatever your fear, there is a promise that Jesus is greater than your fear. If you're like me and you fear you, what you desire is approval, the Scriptures say that you are already approved of in Christ. I mean, my life has been driven throughout my life by the desire to hear, well done, Will, you're awesome. But the promise of the Scripture is that for those who are in Christ, there will come a day where we will walk into the kingdom of God with Jesus Himself, and God the Father will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't need your approval when I know that I have that. And now I can live a life of virtue. I can live a life of of following Jesus without fear of man when I know that I am approved of by God. Whether you may be lonely, the Scriptures say that in Christ you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You may be single and you long for a spouse. Jesus calls Himself your groom. He is the husband that you long for. You may fear conflict. What does Jesus say? Peace, I leave with you. Peace be with you, Jesus says. You may fear sickness. In the kingdom of God, death will be no more, sickness will be no more, and He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. What are you afraid of? Where is your faith? Because in the Scriptures, in Jesus, we have one who overcomes all of our fears. He may, we may, it may, there may be times where we're in the storm and it feels like waves are coming in the boat, but the promise of God is that in the kingdom of heaven, the day will come when Jesus overcomes all our fears. And even if it feels like the waves overcome us today, it's only temporary because in eternity, those things will be completely wiped away. Hebrews 6.19, it says that Jesus is a sure and steady anchor for the soul. He is our hope in the storms. Now, final question they ask is, who is this man? I love this question. It says they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is from the gospel of Mark. And what Mark is doing when he writes his gospel is he starts, he's, he's trying to answer the, this exact question. Who is this man? Who is this man? And what happens is, this, so you have this happen. And they say, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And then when they get to where Jesus was going, he was going to a place called Decapolis. When they get out of the boat, he goes and heals a man who was possessed by demons. And so Jesus, not only does he have power over the winds and the waves, who's this man that the winds and the waves obey him? But then another question arises, who is this man that even demons obey him? And then after that, he heals a woman of a, who had a sickness that had lasted her for years and years and years, and he heals her of that, and then he heals a little girl. He raises a little girl from the dead. And so Jesus, just in like bang, 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 Jesus 
shows that he has authority over the winds and the waves. He shows that he has authority over demons and the principalities and the powers. He shows he has power over sickness and he even has power over death. And the question that Mark is trying to get us to ask is like, who is this guy? Who is this man, Jesus? And that question is finally answered at the cross. Mark strings us along all the way. And then the question is answered at the very end of the book when the Roman centurion, one of the people tasked with killing Jesus, when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit and breathes out his last breath, what does the Roman centurion say? Truly, this man was the Son of God. So we see that God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign over the natural. He's sovereign over the spiritual. He's sovereign over disease and sickness. And then on the cross, it looks like all these things win, doesn't it? It looks like, I mean, it looks like the natural world wars against Jesus. It says the, on the cross, it said everything went dark. It looks like the demons and the principalities and the powers overcame and had victory over Jesus because Jesus died. And then it even looks like death wins because Jesus dies. And you're like, I thought this guy controlled the wind and the waves. I thought this guy had power over the demons and the principalities and the powers. I thought this guy had power over disease and sickness and death. And on the cross, the disciples are having to go, he calmed the storm, but why is he dead? How does he die? But three days later, Jesus comes. He kicks open the tomb and shows that he has power over all those things and that he can remove our fear. What is the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples after he rises and sees them? Peace, be still. This is what he comes to do. He comes to overcome our fears. In fact, in Luke 12, 32, when Jesus was talking about fear, he said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? The kingdom is a place where there will be no more mourning, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more fear. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will bow at the name of Jesus and they will worship him. And you will know him for who he truly is and every fear will be removed from your life and every tear will be wiped away. So the question for you this morning, well, there's three questions, right? What are you afraid of? Where's your faith? And who is this man? And if you answer the question of who is this man, if you agree with the Roman centurion that this man is truly the son of God, then that ought to shape the way you answer the first two questions. What are you afraid of? You ought to be afraid of him and him alone. And where is your faith? It ought to be in him and him alone. And the scriptures say that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. In other words, our fear will be overcome and peace will be with us. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If the winds and the waves calm at the sound of his voice, if the winds and the waves experience peace at the sound of his voice, so can, so can we. And will you experience this peace by believing in him, the Son of God? Let's pray.